What's up, everyone? This is Jeremiah Roberts, one of the co-hosts here at Cultish. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Primo Design Company. That's Primo, P-R-E-M-O-D-E-S-I-G-N dot C-O. The story behind this sponsor is that uh, one of our previous guests uh, was on the show about a year ago. Her name is Jackie Primo. She is a former Jehovah's Witness, uh, shared her story um, her husband has a graphic design company. Uh, he's very talented in his work. If you check out the website at primodesign.co, uh, you can see a good extension of his portfolio and the type of graphic design he's been able to do. Um, he was also affected, his business was affected by the uh, current economic downturn. He had a bunch of clients uh, cancel on him, and obviously he wants to try and provide for his family. So uh, they are running a special promotion right now. If you go to his website, take a look at their design. If you're looking to have work done for whatever project you're, you're trying to do, I definitely recommend you consider him. Take a look at his work. If you reach out to him on his website and let him know that you listen to Cultish and you're interested in doing business with him, he is going to automatically give you $100 off uh, whatever order that you work out with him. So check him out at primodesign.co and uh, take a look at his portfolio and he if you want to get some excellent graphic design work done. And so we're going to be continuing to be working with uh, different uh, people and folks who have had uh, some struggles with their business just to help uh, give them a promotion. We're doing this, uh, trying to do it free of charge. just And we're really tr- wanting to really pay it forward and really help people out during these uncertain times. Also, this program cannot continue without your support. Uh, we always are getting tons of messages by people who are being reached out, uh, blessed by these podcasts. And in fact, our platform, we've been able to even help uh, Alexander Larson and his family that we talked about in our previous podcast, their sponsorship. Um, when we did our initial shout out for them, our platform, we were able to help them sell through all of their coffee online versus them not able to, be, not able to uh, sell it you know, with all the different uh, local markets, the local farmers markets and things like that that got canceled. So uh, we want to use that to pay it forward. So, and also we want to continue to push out more content for you. So again, go to the uh, coldishshow.com, go to the donate tab. You can donate one time or monthly, and we are grateful for all of your support. Our guest today is uh, someone who grew up in a uh, known movement called the Worldwide uh, Church of God. Her name is Michelle Kissman. She's got quite the story, uh, was in the side of this movement for around 30 years, and very had a very interesting conversation, as always. So it's very eye-opening, so enjoy this first part of this episode, and enjoy this podcast. Thank you, guys. My name is Eddie, and I was in a call. Planet Earth about to be recycled. Your only chance to survive or evacuate is to leave with us. It started as an effort by a charismatic preacher to build a new society, but it ended, of course, with the tragic deaths of more than 900 people. Please, for God's sake, let's get on with it. We've lived, we've lived as no other people have lived and loved. We've had as much of this world as you're going to get. Let's just be done with it. Let's be done with the agony of it. This is a revolutionary suicide. This is not a self-destructive suicide. So they'll pay for this. They brought this upon us. You're in a cult. I love you, and I want you out of it and with Christ. But you're, you're, you're... world is going to be rocked with the astounding announcement of a new super world government in Europe, perhaps even more powerful, perhaps even greater than either the Soviet Union or the United States. And it will trigger the feared, awesome nuclear World War III. And the prophecies of your Bible says that definitely it is coming. The World Tomorrow. The Worldwide Church of God presents Herbert W. Armstrong. 
internationally recognized ambassador for world peace. Visiting prominent leaders around the globe. Discussing the cause of world problems. And proclaiming the good news of the world tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, Herbert W. Armstrong. All right, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Cultish Entering the Kingdom of the Colts. My name is Jeremiah Roberts. I'm one of the co-hosts here. As always, I'm joined by Andrew, Super Sleuth Andrew, the Super Sleuth of the show. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well during these uh, perilous times. Doing A- well. Yes, absolutely. And so, as we know, uh, we are in very uncharted, uh, unprecedented times. Uh, the world has changed, uh, continues to change uh, drastically uh, as this uh, interesting uh, coronavirus, a COVID-19 pandemic continues to uh, progress, and there's many different variables in play. The one thing that always takes place is that when it comes to a crisis, um, there's always the world of the cults that try and kind of jump in to give answers of people trying to find certainty. Mm. So what you guys just heard uh, was audio from a television show called uh, uh, World Tomorrow. It was by Herbert W. Armstrong, and he started the Worldwide Church of God. And so we don't, I don't really know a whole lot about him. I do know that he it was referenced uh, quite a bit, pretty much every single volume on cults, uh, especially Walter Martin's uh, Kingdom of the Cults. All of their versions have a lot of issues in which they address Herbert Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God. But we have someone with us today who knows quite a bit. Uh, she grew up in the movement, was part of it for quite some time. Uh, Michelle Kissman, uh, welcome the for- first time to Cultish. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Excellent. And so if you could just maybe start off, tell everyone just a little bit about yourself, uh, who you are, how long were you in the Worldwide Church of God, and what was your experience? Just tell us just a little bit about yourself and your time being there. Okay, so I, um, I'm a mom and a grandma, um, and I live on a farm in Colorado. Um, I was born, well, I wasn't born in the church, but I came into the church at about seven, eight months old, at least within my first year of, of life. And um, I exited the Worldwide Church of God when I was about 30 Um I was in from 67 until about 1996. Hmm. So do the math on that. And um, it was roughly 30 years that I spent um, in this church. I am a graduate of Ambassador College, which was the church's college at the time. And um, I was completely and 100% um, completely Uh, a part of this movement and this church, and I had um, no doubt that it was God's true church. Mm. Okay. And so just so jumping into the just the foundations, because people hear about, I mean, there's a lot of cults we've addressed. There's cults that people are familiar with. Um, A lot of time, a lot of people may not be fully, completely familiar with Herbert W. Armstrong. So maybe for anyone who's listening for the first time who don't who doesn't really know too much about it can we start at the beginning tell us about herbert armstrong who he was and yeah just kind of enter if you could just introduce us to him and we can take it from there all right herbert w armstrong was um a man who was um very well well-versed in marketing, and he came into that profession fairly young um, when, you know, he was first married, and I don't recall all of his, um, you know, past and, and what led up to that, but he, he became a very, um, very good marketer, and he was into, um, you know, really just after the American dream. And this was like in the 20s and 30s. He had some business failures and um, always, you know, picked himself up by the bootstrap. So he was in that era where, you know, there was a lot of um, opportunities. And even though you failed, you had, you still had a lot of opportunities to, to you know, get back in and, and learn different professions. He never had a, um, 
I don't think he, he had any kind of a college education. So, um, you know, he was, he was all after success mm-hmm. and he was trying to reach that success. And at the time, his wife um, became a member of the Seventh-day Adventists and or Church of God Seventh-day, one of those two. Anyway, um, you know, and she was trying to proselytize him, evangelize him to this way of life and he and these beliefs and he just didn't buy it. So finally, I think after a, a business, failure um you know through her talking to him he kind of dove into theology and started studying it and he came to the conclusion that the sabbath was god's um chosen day that we are to worship on and he started you know really kind of accepting a lot of the the church of god's day um beliefs and um from there uh, he got involved in the church, and I think that at some point he, through his studies, started going off uh, what their doctrines were holding and started creating his own doctrines, and I believe he was kind of kicked out of that church um, because they didn't have a thing of mind doctrinally. Mm-hmm. So he set out to start his own movement, and he... Um, Started out back in the 30s on the radio. Radio was a new thing, and it was a great way to reach the masses. And, of course, it was pre-World War II. It was post um, uh, the the, um, 1929-stock market crash, so the Great Depression had come in. And so it was a perfect time to give answers to people who were questioning everything and living a you know, hard and um, harsh life. So he came out with his Radio Church of God, and I don't remember if that's what it was called at the very beginning. However, he started to teach his prophecy, and his prophecy was very, very convincing. He Mm -hmm. used a lot of techniques in the marketing world that were um, done to capture someone's attention, to... um, get them intrigued and to really uh, get them to start questioning what they believed and to hold something back so that people wanted more. Mm-hmm. Like they wanted to know the next, um, the next thing he was going to tell them. So he, he would kind of bait them and, um, and it was a very, very successful, you know, um, way that he ran his radio ministry and um, it just started growing like crazy. And, of course, looking at the headlines, and he was using his form of, of eschatology to, um, you know, with the times, combine them and create something that people were fearful of and wanted to know a way to escape. Yeah. Um, well, so that, that was kind of the beginning, I think, of the worldwide or of, of the Radio Church of God. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as my family goes, um, my grandmother became part of, of uh, the, the um, Seventh-day Adventists. And I'm guessing that hmm. was probably maybe 40s or 50s that she um, started attending that church. She was part of Foursquare. She raised all her kids in Foursquare, um, but somehow got associated with Seventh-day Adventists. And from there, my two aunts started attending with her. And, um, and then my grandfather, during the 50s, I think it was the early 50s, came across Mr. Armstrong on the radio and was very intrigued. Hmm. And, you know, the Dust Bowl in the Midwest came through Colorado and just made for a horrific um, experience there. And they suffered that. And he just seemed to be having these answers of what was going on in the world and why was it happening, and um, what could we do about escaping it or or dealing with it? Mm. So, um, my father, um, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. My father was uh, married at a very young age. He was seventeen, and um, quit school as a junior in high school. Um, gifted football player, had a lot of prospects, and and got married um, early. 
had his first son at 18 and had two more daughters and then was divorced by the time he was like 23, 24. Oh, wow. Um, so he moved home with his mom and dad. So he and his father listened to Mr. Armstrong. Um, they worked together. And so they had uh, this time that they would spend every day listening to Mr. Armstrong on the radio. And uh, so from there, my dad got introduced to him. And my grandmother, who was part of Seventh-day Adventist, it just kind of meshed a right. little bit. These teachings and everything just kind of meshed. Well, my grandfather died in 1959. My parents got married. My, my dad met my mom, and, you know, this is his second marriage, and got married in 1961. So around 1960, my my grandmother and my two aunts who had converted to Seventh-day Adventism had come out to California to meet my parents who were living there at the time. And they decided, you know what? Mr. Armstrong's church is somewhere around here, Southern California. Let's Let's go figure out, you know, where it is and let's go attend. So they did and they were sold. Um, hmm. They came back to Colorado. My aunt was baptized the next year. Then it followed with my grandmother and my aunt. And pretty soon the entirety, save two uncles out of eight children, all joined the church. Um, my dad was the last one to join with my mom in 1967. Um, but, you know, it was, it was just like a, a landslide. The whole family came in and so I had a lot of cousins that were all raised here my you know I mean we had a very very cohesive and close-knit family and the church um, was the perfect setting for keeping us in and all together and mm-hmm. uh, not exposed as much to the outside world right which is classic Oh yeah. So just stop me whenever you want me. No, it's it's it's, to, it's uh, yeah. Go uh, off and just, you know. Oh no, this is I'm very, I'm 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 just fascinated and I and I and it's, this is very very eye opening and I think this is going to be helpful for a lot of people, um, because even if you haven't heard of Herbert Armstrong or the Worldwide Church of God, you're still going to see characteristics um, that take place within cults, and as you see how they would take. Uh, Advan- almost in advantage or put themselves in position out of the time uncertainty, things like the Great Depression or World War II. Mm-hmm. There's a reality where there's not there's nothing new under the sun. Under the sun, the stuff happens all the time. But then when people use uh, their special insight of the apocalyptic language in order to find out um, what's really going on. So I had just have a question real quickly, and then I think Andrew has one too. Mm-hmm. When it comes to Herbert Armstrong. You mentioned I, when I was reading uh, just some of the precursors about who he was, both in Walter Martin's book and some of the materials that you provided for us in a preparation for this episode, um, when it talks about him being uh, getting into marketing and promotion, obviously he knew how to leverage media and radio, and but then he went into founding this church. Was there, was there, do you think with him starting this church, was it, do you think it was genuine as in he really believed he was talking to God? Or was it a matter of this is how he could be a professional marketer, having the special insight knowledge and using radio to do it, or starting a church for the sake of being successful at marketing? And I guess the parallel that I'm making is with L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology. Prior to him founding the church, he wrote the most amount of science fiction. Even Charles Taze Russell. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he was a science fiction writer, but he wanted to start a religion so he could be tax exempt. Like, he's on record for saying that. So do you think it was a, was he like genuine in regards to believing he was starting, uh, I guess you could call it God's organization, or was he trying to do a marketing, or was it a little bit of both? You know, I wasn't around at that time, but uh, from reading bits and pieces of his biography and or his autobiography and um, just going through the whole entire experience listening to him speak you know i i heard him speak live i've met him um you know he spoke to us every piece of tabernacles and so in my opinion it was very genuine when i read a lot one of the resources i sent you was exit support network and i read some of the letters and i read some of that um the evidence makes it very um obvious that there was definitely a motivation of um, greed in the whole thing. Mm. So I think that it was probably both. I think he saw an opportunity and 
took it. I think he might have been pretty genuine in his beliefs and thinking um, that he, you know, was on to something. Um, you know, it takes a big ego to think that you have this revelation from God and you're the only one who has it. And then from there to go out and market it and build the church upon it and hold complete sovereign authority over the masses. Mm. And that, that takes a lot of, you know, um, ego. And I believe he had that. Absolutely. That, that, and I think that mm. it, that uh, all of this fed him, um, you know, his desire to become, to become a great man, um, very successful, you know, it all played into it. Yeah. So, so one of my questions, this leads perfectly into it was what, what made him special? What did he say to people that gave him this unquestionable authority? One thing I was, I was reading about is that he called himself the second Elijah and said that he was a descendant of the biblical King David on his mother's side. So what was so special about him that, that, that made people um, not really question him on his authority? You know, uh, that, that is a really good question because I am a second generation. Um, so that would be, you know, a question for my parents to answer. Um, I think that it was just his apocalyptic um, and authoritative way he came across as, I know something that you don't. And I've got uh, the recipe here to escape it. Mm. And not only that, you've been lied to your whole life, mm. you know, by religion, number one, no matter what denomination you were, it was all pagan. It was all antichrist. It was all, um, you know, uh, totally against the, you know, the truth of God. And, um, it, you know, your whole life you've been lied to. So when you're getting that, you're like, okay, what, what are you saying? You know, if I've been lied to, what are you saying? And yeah. he spoke in such a way, I think, that just captured um, people. And I will say this, and, you know, I don't mean to denigrate anybody, but the people that he captured were obviously very ignorant of their Bibles. Mm. They were ignorant of God's word. They were not taught in their um, churches, maybe that they had grown up in or that they, you know, were attending at that time, they, there was kind of, you know, just this ignorance that they, um, that wasn't being filled and wasn't being taught. And so he was giving you something that your church wasn't giving you. Right. And, um, and there was, you know, there was a, a certain degree of Gnosticism because there was this, this deeper mystery, this deeper knowledge that he had and nobody else had. Hmm. So I believe that he captured my family. Mm. you know, um, attention and, uh, you know, my, my, my family were blue collar workers, you know, in Pueblo, Colorado, they, they weren't wealthy. They were, you know, fairly lower middle class, um, to, you know, below middle class. And so, you know, it was those type of people that he really, really, um, spoke to, they had a way of getting out of their situation and becoming more important, more bigger, you know, it, and, and when we get to it, you know, his big thing was the great human potential. Right. And when you are a nobody <laughs> and you start hearing that you can be not only um, have eternal life, but you can be God, become God as God is God. Mm. Uh, that's huge. You know? that is and huge. that's huge to somebody who doesn't know anything better, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's that's that that is huge. It coupled on like two with some doctrine, which we'll get into later. But we're not to to Herbert Armstrong. We're not saved by grace through faith alone. It's actually a process, right, of salvation that you could actually mm -hmm. achieve through obedience to God's spiritual laws summed up in the Ten Commandments. Correct. So, not if you want to achieve that godhood, you have to listen to what er Herbert Armstrong is saying. Mm -hmm. So it's keeping people in that in that yoke. You got to keep listening and you got to keep obeying which is, you know, that's, right. that's what they do. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, he used, um, he used definitely mind techniques. And um, as I was doing my research, you know, I learned that he had studied mind comp. Hmm. And he had, um, 
really kind of uh, perfected the way to um, disarm people and get them to start questioning everything that they believed mm -hmm. and start, um, you know, basically t stripping you down until you had nothing that you were clinging to because everyone and everything had lied to you. So you were totally open to accepting his new truth. Hmm. Wow. So what, what was his position on, on God's word, on the Bible then? Because it sounds like in order to get people who are somewhat familiar with the Bible, not too comfortable with it, to actually follow his teachings, did he ever attack like the the infallibility of the word of God and say that there's things that he needs to interpret in order for it to be correct? Like, where did, where did that come in? You know, I, I had this quote that in my research that um, was pretty telling. And I didn't ever get that as I was growing up mm -hmm. in the church and, and in college. But really, <laughs> you know, after reading this, Excuse me, got to get my glasses on. Um, oh. He he said that the Bible was a coded book, mm -hmm. um, and this is this is just a, a an excerpt from um, one of the things that I did study on. He said um, that. Uh, This is the quote, but most who try to apply this principle in biblical understanding take each little verse out of its context to interpret their own ideas into it. The very fact that its truths are revealed here a little and there a little means it is a coded book, not to be understood until our present time of the end. The Bible is like a jigsaw puzzle until the various pieces of a jigsaw are put properly together. The true picture does not emerge. Those are Mr. Armstrong's words mm. um, taken from an excerpt. And I, unfortunately, I didn't take the, the exact place that that was found, but it was in a critique done on his um, pivotal book, uh, Mystery of the Ages, which was his last book that he yeah. wrote before he died. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, that tells you only he can understand that coded book. That's what he was portraying to us. Yep. You know, he would say, this is the truth. Go read it in your Bible, mm -hmm. but this is the truth, and here's my booklet, you know. And so his booklets and the Bible were put, you know, equal emphasis on. And because he'd already disarmed you that you couldn't understand the Bible, you would pick his booklet <laughs> right. to read, you know, instead of going to the Bible. And in his booklet, he took everything out of context. So when you went to your Bible and looked up those passages, yeah, that's exactly what they said. But, you know, with his, um, his sway mm -hmm. version of it, you know, his perverted version of it. And so that, you know, that hopefully that answers your question. He he did put an emphasis on the Bible, but it was not understandable to, mm -hmm. yeah. to the lay person. Yeah. Well, that's funny because that, that reminds me uh, back in the, especially it was a really kind of a big fad back in the 90s. You don't really see it too much anymore, but there was a while, um, the but the Bible code where people had an idea where it's almost you could sort of read the Bible in 4D and then always have these like hidden messages or, or prophecies about things about whether it's September 11th or Y2K or whatever the whatever the end times events were. They, of course, they never, they always found out what they were at until after they happened. Right. And they conveniently really brought it into place. But again, it's just one of those particular things where you'll see... Um, whether it's David Koresh, who had his special insight into the seven seals, which is a branch off too of Seventh-day Adventism. Mm -hmm. So you see that as well too. He had the special insight into what the seven seals were, and he used the current events to bring in this gathering, to, to, to really bring people into the fold. Um, on that note, so when you're talking, Michelle, about when you this brought all your family together and now you're reading these booklets— um, one of the aspects when you talk about being isolated from the outside world, and it happens on many levels, uh, depending, just for example, you have a, a lot of times like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, they, they keep them extraordinarily busy. 
where they're either in some sort of Bible study or they're in some sort of group gathering and you're always doing something. So you kind of really have no time to slow down or think. Uh, the same happens a lot of times within uh, Mormonism. They're just, they, they stay incredibly busy and they just always have them plugged in doing something. And you see it that obviously lived out. But for you, what was being on the inside of the Worldwide Church of God and your upbringing, like what's, what, what's life like or was like? What was it like for you on a day-to-day basis and a weekly basis? What was that like? Um, well, growing up in the church was a lot of... Um, it was hard. It was, as, as a kid, you didn't want to be different. And we were very similar to the Jehovah Witnesses. Matter of fact, in, in a lot of my research, and I think um, the the church today that kind of, you know, morphed into Grace Community International would admit that uh, Mr. Armstrong took a lot of the JW teachings. Mm. And um, so part of those were we didn't celebrate Christmas, we didn't celebrate Easter, we didn't celebrate Valentine's Day. You know, all those holy days were, holidays were uh, pagan. Right, And so when you had your Valentine party at school, <laughs> which we used to do way back in the day and get your Valentine's out and everything, I could never participate. And so it, you know, there was, I felt singled out. And as a kid, you don't want to be signaled out. So I, I hated it. On the flip side of that, um, I felt very special, which you know, seems kind of weird. In one sense, I didn't want anyone to know anything about me or my, my religion. But on the flip side of that, um, I felt like I was above everyone mm-hmm. because I was in God's true church and they didn't know it. They didn't um, have that secret knowledge. And so at some point I was going to be, you know, this great God and they were going to be, you know, the lesser people. And so there, there was that... <laughs> you know, um, war within me, that tension within me, you know, that, that I had, and my sister had it too. My younger brother did not have that. He was open to telling everybody what he believed and, you know, was not shy, did not shy away from saying, you know, to all his friends and teachers, Christmas is pagan and, you know, you shouldn't be celebrating that because that's, you know, whatever, you know, going on to that. But anyway, we, you know, and then, with our family members on my mom's side, my mom had um, a completely different upbringing than my dad, and she was uh, raised by a very godly single mom um, who taught her the Bible and uh, raised her very well. Um, a lot of her cousins credit my grandmother with uh, bringing them to Christ, and it's very interesting that it didn't happen with my mom. Hmm. Um, so. Anyway, but on my mom's side, you know, they were all doing, um, you know, Christian type things because they would go to church. It was either Protestant church or Catholic church. Um, so they were very involved in all of that. And we couldn't participate in any of that either. So it was, you know, it, nowhere did we fit in except hmm. at church. Wow. Yeah, it, it sounds it feels like. Almost our episodes talking with Clay and with our other guests who grew up in the Jehovah's Witnesses. You'll even, see that exactly too. Even in the UPCI, yeah. um, it sounds just like with Jennifer Brewer. The mm-hmm. same thing where it's like you didn't want to stand out because of it, but at the same time, you felt like you had this hand up with this secret, this secret knowledge. Yeah, like you know I hate I mean? the fact that I have to wear long hair and or like these long dresses, and it's kind of embarrassing that I have to even do sports and those. But at the same time, though, like we're 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 in the elite groups or the have and have nots. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I'm curious about too, and this again ties back into uh, Herbert Armstrong and what he uh, believed and how he incorporated uh, prophecy with a special insight into uh, how the Bible is supposed to be uh, coded the way that he sees it. I believe it's, it's, it's his belief in regards to Israel. I mean, Baltimore talked about it. It's an Anglo-Israelism. Is that, can you tell us about... Mm-hmm what that that doctrine and how it related to to how he ran how he how his worldview was structured through that well 
that that's a hard one because I never actually read the book. Mm. Um, so he believed that Israel, um, the Israel of today was not in Israel, <laughs> that, um, that the 12 tribes had kind of migrated through Europe. Mm-hmm. And the Great Britain and the United States were basically Ephraim and Manasseh. And so um, we had this special, the specialness in, in the eyes of God. And he was, of course, God's prophet, God's apostle in bringing this all out. I don't recall, and I didn't really do a lot of research on how that all played into um, his doctrines. However, I do remember him saying that he was, you know, definitely a descendant of David. His church history was, <laughs> you know, I read now how bad it was, um, but back then it was very captivating. Um, when I took the class in college, you know, we learned about church history, but we learned it through Mr. Armstrong's mm-hmm. teachings. And so, you know, he he went all the way down to Queen Elizabeth, you know, was in his line and he was right, you know, right there. And, um, and so there was, there was obviously some, um, attachment also to the 144,000 in revelation that we were all going to be a part of, of that group, um, similar to the JW as I know. Um, but I'm, you know, I, I apologize. I can't give you a lot more information about yeah. British Israelism. No, and that's perfect. And that's perfectly okay. I think one of the things just to note, which, which I think of, and you can give your insight here too, Andrew, yeah. is that when it comes to uh, someone's uh, eschatology and how they interpret the world, and even if you watch those videos of a guy who's of uh, the world tomorrow, the introductory video, you see him in contact with world leaders. So, in a, and there's a level where he's genuinely sincere, and he's incorporating his worldview of, as far as like where the world is headed with his um, particular insight as far as what's going to happen during the end times. Yeah, yeah. And for the Anglo-Israelite theory, it's not something necessarily that he created, but I see it as more a vehicle that he used to try to prove his authority that he had as being a descendant of King David. Mm. So according to Walter Martin, just for our listeners out here, says the basic premise of the Anglo-Israelite theory is that the 10 tribes were lost when the Jews were captured by the Assyrians under King Sargon and that these so-called lost tribes are in reality the Saxae or Scythians, who surged westward through northern Europe and eventually became the ancestors of the Saxons, who later invaded England. The theory maintains that the Anglo-Saxons are the lost ten tribes of Israel and are substantiated, or, and are substituted in the Anglo-Israel interpretation and exegesis for the Israel of the Bible. So that that's pretty much the, Ang- the Anglo-Israelite theory in a nutshell from hmm. Walter Martin there. So for me, I see it. He, he uses that theory as a vehicle to prove his authority so he could be that decoder of the Bible in regards to these prophecies. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's how I see it. Okay. Um, and speaking of prophecies, Michelle, one of the things that also caught my attention is that his show, we introduced, it, we, I watched a couple episodes, we played the audio at the very beginning, talking about his insights of current events uh, during his time. You met him in person, and I'm sure you saw uh, more than a couple episodes of The World Tomorrow about what was going on. Can you give us some examples of just what were some of the things that he had insight in and predicted uh, back during his time that you remember? Mm-hmm. Um, well... You know, of course, I was too young to really remember um, him talking about it. But one of the big things was the end was going to happen. The tribulation was going to come in 1972. Mm. That was like a a critical year. So all of his, you know, I have to go back when my when my dad and my grandfather started listening to him in the 50s. Think about what was going on at that time. The Cold War was starting and. Um, you know, there was this uh, this race, you know, this arms race through the 60s. And so all of this was supposed to culminate in the tribulation in 1972. Mm. So everything happening around my, my parents and my aunts and uncles and, you know, the world, you know, as we knew it, you know, Mr. Armstrong had a very, very captivated audience. He really did. And so... And he played on that, um, again, because of our ignorance. So 1972 was D-Day. 
um, for for the tribulation to begin. And to to back up a little bit, um, you know, because I, I think, why didn't my parents, when that didn't happen, why did they stick in, you know, why did they stick with this? Because their life, um, you know, they got married in 1961, and they had my sister in 63, me in 66. They came into the church in 67, and um, the minister came to visit them one day. And, and just in talking, um, I found out that, that my, I had an older son. And obviously, it was not my mother's child. So he started questioning him and came to find out my dad had been married before. Well, the church had a doctrine on divorce and remarriage. So they, uh, w- what the church did was they took uh, the, the, the story, you know, of, of what happened, and then they decided whether you were bound to your first spouse or not. And based upon that finding, you were either currently living in adultery with your, your new spouse or you weren't. Mm. And if you were found to be in adultery with your new spouse, you had to split up. And you either had to go back to your first wife or, you know, just remain single the rest of your life. So my mom and dad had um, my brother Marcus in, in 1971. And um, this divorce and remarriage thing happened probably right around 1968. So it was pretty quickly after my parents had started going to church. And they, of course, found that my dad was bound to his first wife. Hmm. So... They're, they're, um, the only thing they could do was to split up. Well, they didn't, so they couldn't go to church. So they lived by doing the, the correspondence course, the church's correspondence course, um, reading all the booklets that they could read, and um, listening to Mr. Armstrong on the radio as often as they could. And, um, and then my brother came around. Well, the end is supposed to happen in 1972, right. and it's 1971. And so they decided to go ahead and make that sacrifice where they were going to split up so that we would have um, the opportunity to not go through the tribulation, to be saved out of it, because, of course, the church was going to flee to Petra, and, um, and we would be protected from all of that. And, you know, I know this doesn't completely answer your question, but do you mind? Mind if I just read something that I think is very important to um, what they did this time? No, go it's for it. a letter. My oh, dad go for it, yeah. Might think you. My dad had moved to Arizona um, when they decided to split up. My brother was eight months old. I was five, and my sister was eight. Um, and so, and, you know, my parents lived in Denver, and then my dad moved to Arizona to, to be away from her because it was too hard, obviously. Um, so my mom wrote my dad this letter, and it was written um, December 29th, 1971. She worked for a furniture store, so the, these names in here are her bosses. She says, I got so envy. Well, she's... She's talking about her bosses bought new 1972 Pontiacs. (laughs) And she says, I got so envious for a little while, but then started thinking what their end will be in just a few short years. So that took care of my envy. Envy turned to pity. And if they die before that, they will be resurrected in the hundred year period. And I have their human and have their human nature to overcome and poor things when they have 60 or 70 years of bad habits, it isn't easy to change your ways. Mr. Leeser is so used to live, lying to people and thinking he is so good. It will sure be hard for him, but then it's hard for all of us. But think we, you and I, will have higher positions in the kingdom than they will, and for all eternity seems too good to be true. We were studying in Bible study the other night, and it was really interesting Think how many blessings Mark, which is my younger brother, will have with you and I, with the power of God. We will also get to see and be with our children and see all their generations for 1,000 years. We will be able to make ourselves manifest so they can see us, or we don't have to. We will be able to read their minds, and we can assign our angels to be with them. Whenever 
for we are performing our duties elsewhere, even around the world, and we can be back with them in an instant. The Bible says in the millennium, people will walk after their own God, which means us, and that is really fantastic. I guess when people learn this new truth, it almost seems blasphemous. Can you imagine seeing Mark's children and grandchildren for about 50 generations? Then it will be really something to see our ancestors, fathers and grandfathers, etc. I wonder if our ancestors say back five or six generations were even in God's church. Perhaps there were some, and they may have overcome. Overcome is a, <laughs> a word that we used a lot. And will also be in the first resurrection. Just think, you'll have a hundred years to teach your dad how to live. You'll be able to bless him and heal him of his blindness and whatever. You'll get to see him go to the Feast of Tabernacles yearly, and everyone will have great abundance. So whatever we go through now, I guess, isn't even worth mentioning if you think of the many blessings and the reward God has for us. Plus, we will escape the tribulation. The only difference is you and I are doing this of our own free will, and the rest of the world will also have to do it. But they will suffer terribly for being so stubborn and not wanting to obey God's laws. You and I may go through a lot of mental anguish now, but they will go through physical, and that will really leave its mark. So that's a letter my mother wrote to my father when they split up, you know, one month before 1972. Wow. And um, it, it, it's pretty remarkable. I, My mom gave every letter she ever got, I think. And, you know, last summer we were going through all her things um, and and found this. And it was just, I mean, I, I was I was in tears. It, almost every time I read that, I'm, I move to tears. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's an amazing letter. There's, there's so much theology and like eschatology about what he taught jam-packed in that letter i'm hearing a hundred years i'm hearing a thousand years i'm hearing walking with them the people who didn't believe during this time and manifesting to them to help them do something in a hundred years could, could you explain uh, uh, some of the eschatology and theology behind that yes so mr armstrong taught that um the the first fruits was the church. The church was the fruit, first fruits. And that were that was those who um, overcame. So we had to overcome. We had to qualify. Um, and, you know, you qualified because you were overcoming. He taught that Jesus paid um, for our past sins, but not our current and future sins. So you know, once you came to believe, everything in the past was done away with. God, you know, remembered it no more. But from here on out, you were responsible. So you had to overcome and you had to qualify. And how you did that was with the help of the Holy Spirit, which was a power, not a person. Mm. So um, so if you qualified, you would be among the first fruits to be raised at the first resurrection. Now, we didn't teach a rapture or anything like that, but the first resurrection would happen when Jesus returned. And then um, we would rule and reign with him on earth for the thousand-year millennium, and that was uh, called the world tomorrow. So when you hear him referred to the world tomorrow, he's talking about the millennium. Mm -hmm. um, so we were going to rule and reign with him, for with uh, Jesus, for a thousand years. And then at the end of the millennium was the second resurrection. And that is when every person was resurrected who was ever born from Adam all the way till, you know, now, um, they were all, all going to be resurrected who didn't believe, who weren't a part of the first fruits. Um, they would be resurrected and they would get, be given a hundred years to overcome, to learn God's ways, to be taught God's ways, to overcome, and then to, of course, qualify um, at, at the end of that hundred year period. And uh, so at the third resurrection, which was the white from judgment, happened at the end of the 100-year period. So at the, 100 year, or at, at the white from judgment, that's when Satan and the beast and, and all of them were thrown into the lake of fire. 
and everyone who did not believe. Hmm. So, you know, anyone who was found not qualified hmm. was thrown into the lake of fire at that point. Wow. And it was complete annihilation. It was not um, eternal suffering, eternal hell. Hmm. Uh, so now, uh, Another guess... doctrine he yes. got Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, speaking of Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm seeing the similar, so many different parallels and similarities, both with, uh, both in regards to uh, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society and uh, Seventh-day Adventism. Especially, it just so happens that three or that this prophecy happened, it was supposed to take place in 1972. Right. Jehovah's Witnesses had their prophecy that was supposed to take place in 1975, the consequences there mm-hmm. that they lost a extraordinary large amount of their membership. And for those of us in our audience, you know, if you're, you're listening to that letter that Michelle wrote, I mean that, that she read uh, just talking about, if you hear this, just the sincerity of, uh, you talk about a true believer fully right. committed to this, that you severed, you severed your marriage mm-hmm. based off of this prediction. That's just one particular example, but you have a bunch of, a bunch of people who are looking at, Herbert Armstrong and his insight into world events and predicting things. And there's a level of loyalty and camaraderie that happens. And you believe this is just all something that's bigger than yourself. Obviously that came and went. It's now 2020. Yeah. And we have our own issues that we're dealing with, but what was it like? Maybe to talk about maybe a little bit about your parents or just from what you know for within the worldwide church of God when 1972 came and went, like, how did people handle that? How do they deal with that? <laughs> yeah, like seriously. what did they just sort of re-explain it so, or how did that work? Well, while my parents were separated and they were only separated for a couple months, they just couldn't do it. Um, you know, my mom had three little kids and my dad was, you know, three States away. And so he came home after several months, and then he went down to Pueblo and actually took me with him for several weeks. And even that was too far away and too hard. So they ended up staying together. And so 1972 came and went, and there was nothing. And and I don't recall that at all. I was too young. And I've, I've since questioned my mom. Unfortunately, she can't give me a lot of insight into it because she suffered from dementia now I wish I would have thought about asking her all these questions a long time ago but uh, you know they 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 stuck with it and I don't have any understanding of why except that mr. Armstrong got his numbers wrong and it was 1975 just like Jehovah Witnesses so 1975 was the next crucial date mm-hmm. um, that that the tribulation was going to happen And then in 1974, so they couldn't go to church this whole time unless they were separated. So only during Mm. the time that my dad was away could we go to church. And I have letters that she writes to me. um, Sorry, my cat just jumped up on my That's okay. (laughs) Um, Awesome. (laughs) That that she writes, you know, about going to church during this time when they were separated. But... uh, uh, the, the church's doctrine in 1974, and, and to back up, in 1972, they did lose a lot of membership because that was a failed prophecy. So um, because of that membership loss, one of the things that I did in my research was this DNR doctrine, this divorce and marriage doctrine. And in 1974, they decided to reverse that and um, allow people who were had been remarried to stay with their spouses. So at that point, I was eight years old. My parents could be together and we could go to church. And it was this great, huge, I just remember the joy that my parents had. And even I had, because by eight years old, even though I wasn't going to church, I was completely indoctrinated by everything my mom and dad were teaching us. So I knew at eight years old that, you know, this was God's true church and that I wanted to with every bit of my being to be able to go to church and so we started going to church and then 1975 came and went and i don't have any real memories of that either um except that we just kept plugging along tribulation was going to come we just didn't know when you know these, Mm. these these failed prophecies were not something that caused it if anything it caused my parents to be more steadfast 
which is really interesting to me hmm. that um that that they would you know that they would do that and and my my grandmother my sweet 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 godly godly grandmother would come visit and she would go to church with us and she would say tell my mother you know that man's just trying to take your money you wow. know that hmm. and my mom was like oh you don't know what you're talking about and she'd say no i i know i i listen i he's trying to take your money and my parents would just you know push her off you know that kind of thing hmm. wow i mean it just this is just what it part of what happens within these structures you know you're given mm -hmm. a unique uh identity and you're you're taught to really and also it, it takes away your a lot of times it takes away your critical thinking skills because i mean you're taught i mean we're we're we're, we're taught we're all having a conversation right here now in 2020 analyzing uh these predictions that took place you know back in the 70s and so we can deal with a level of clarity and reason, but when you're caught up in the moment and this is just your life and this is what you believe, there there's a level in which the critical thinking uh, doesn't uh, really it, it kind of puts gets put to the wayside. And again, if you have, if you guys have ever want to read an excellent book that kind of talks about why these things take place, uh, Combating Cult Mind Control by Steve Hassan is excellent. Uh, he has a bite model that talks about behavior control, information control thought control and emotional control and this is either just the psychological commonalities that a lot of these groups have especially when it comes to undue influence isolation things like that yeah i mean if you're if you're also told that you can't necessarily read the bible for yourself and understand it you have to have some interpreter interpret it for you and they uh put one aspect of the law of god higher than others you're not going to ever read deuteronomy chapter 18 and find if there's one false prophecy from somebody they are a false prophet cast them to the side. You know what I mean? You're not going to, mm -hmm. you're not going to have the law of God to actually protect you now from false prophets. So I highly doubt that was even a verse that was ever read. Right. You know, and I, I want to say something bef before we do end the, the episode in regards to all of these dates and there's why there's similarities with the Jehovah's witnesses and with um, the worldwide church of God and Herbert W. Armstrong. It's because they use a date the date is 1844 to use these calculations. And this came from William Miller, the Millerites. He created this date. And there was something called the Great Disappointment that occurred on October 22nd, 1844. And that's when Jesus Christ did not return, according to Miller. Mm. However, after this, um, Ellen G. White and James White, and also other proponents of the Millerites, who were followers of William Miller, uh, formed another branch which would be called, they weren't Seventh-day Adventists yet. However, they said 1844 wasn't actually the date. It was the sign of the investigative judgment. Something else was occurring. It was a spiritual change that happened, and now people are becoming judged. Well, the issue is, after this, is we have offshoots from this great disappointment in 1844, which Charles Taze Russell was a proponent of the Millerites. Mm -hmm. um, so was Ellen G. White, which is later on the Seventh-day Adventists. And now we actually have... Herbert W. Armstrong being influenced from the Seventh-day Adventists or Church of God Seventh-day at the time, they all used the 1844 date to begin their calculations. That's why we see similarities with all of these dates. And also use it to explain away why they got it wrong. Right. Right. So in other words, they just like, no, I didn't mean a, I didn't mean a assistant manager. I meant assistant to the regional manager. <laughs> <laughs> so all that being said, for those of you who uh, hopefully either you got that uh, pun reference or you didn't so uh, by now you should get it otherwise no explanation needed all right uh, michelle this has been a great uh first part to this i know you got some we're going to try and squeeze in a uh, part two here because i know you have some uh other stuff you got to attend to so we'll really appreciate you coming on um for and thank you guys uh, uh ladies and gentlemen all of you for listening uh, we really appreciate your support um, as always, uh, we cannot, this program uh, cannot continue without your support. There's a lot that goes into this production. So we would ask that you go to the coldishshow.com, go to the donate tab. Uh, you can donate one time or monthly. Uh, also, consistently, we're going to be having uh, sponsorships. Uh, we are working with different uh, local, uh, different businesses that have struggled to adjust with all these un un struggling economic times. So any of those people that you support is definitely going to help them. Uh, and also be looking for merchandise, uh, cultish merchandise to come soon. Uh, we are, we're definitely excited about that. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> all right. So all that being said, thank you all so much for listening. And we'll talk to you guys in part two of Cultish, where we answer into 
uh, the Kingdom of the Cults. Talk to you guys soon.